All right, this is the uh, concluding lecture for financial markets. And in this lecture, uh, I want to, oh, I titled this lecture Finding Your Purpose in a World of Financial Capitalism. Uh, but I just want to give a lot of uh, summary thoughts about the course and uh, about your place in the world of business and finance. Um, so we had two, well, we had the major textbook for this course was by Fabozzi et al. Uh, and it gave you a lot of detailed information about financial markets and institutions. Did you like it? <laughs> uh, I'm getting approval, I guess. <laughs> I, I put you through something because I thought you have to know that material. Finance is like a language. There's a lot of, what well, is a language? There's a lot of jargon. And behind the jargon are concepts. Uh, and so I, I, I wanted you to uh, immerse yourself in that. Uh, I also assigned my uh, manuscript for my new book, which is tentatively entitled Finance and the Good Society. Uh, I'm uh, still not sure that that will be the final title. Uh, some of you have been offering me suggested titles, and I appreciate that. Uh, you can never know what the title of a book will be before you publish it, because someone else can always grab the title, and then you've got to change it. So, um, But that book was uh, about, uh, I wanted to, uh, see, Fabozzi is more about all of the language of finance and all of the technical details. I wanted to uh, supplement it with something about the, the purpose of all this and how it fits into our lives. So it's not done yet, as you may be well aware <laughs> in reading it. My apologies. Uh, but I, I benefit from interacting with you about it, and uh, it's a dynamic thing. So uh, this, I, I have a number of themes. Uh, they're all just kind of random thoughts about the major things in this course. Uh, and so, um, but I mean, I'm, I'm really thinking this time about the kind of tools we've learned about, um, tools that are particularly useful for people who specialize in finance, but, but I think are almost, this almost should be a required course for everyone. <laughs> Maybe I'm just too enthusiastic about it, but. I mean, knowing, yeah, that's the way things get done in our society is through financial arrangements. And uh, too many people talk in vague terms, not, you know, how are we going to make something happen? And finance is about that. So that's why I think this uh, course should be, there <laughs> should be more students <laughs> taking it than are. Um, I, I also said that I, I, I think that. You know, finance is not a purpose in itself, it's a tool, uh, and that uh, you should be building your life around some kind of purpose. Uh, there's a million different purposes, so that's uh, something for you to create in your own mind. Uh, but that's where the meaning of life comes from. Uh, so, I've, another thing I've emphasized in this course is that finance is like engineering. Uh, so. You have to design it, and, and once something is designed and it works, it gets copied all over the world. 
so uh, you all have learned how to drive a car. Is anyone here who hasn't driven a car? <laughs> I won't ask for <laughs> no one raised their hand. Um, so you have to know a little bit about mechanics, right, to drive a car. Maybe not too much, uh, but uh, uh, ultimately what I wanted to do in this course is maybe not teach you how to build a car, but how to drive a truck, <laughs> okay? Something big and powerful uh, and get you beyond the, the simple things. So um, finance, uh, what does it do? Uh, it does really important things. It helps allocate scarce resources. It incentivizes people to do good work, and it manages risks. Um, and uh, this is what makes for the developed world that we have now. Another theme of this course is about information technology, which is something that's rapidly expanding. I don't have to tell you that, but I think that it will change the world of finance. The last 50 years have shown tremendous changes. The next 50 years will, will show even more dramatic changes. Uh, so, um, all right, anyway, more specifically, I have seven themes that I want to cover in, in today's lecture. Uh, the first one is just about the morality of finance. I've been talking about this here and again, but uh, let me say a little bit more about that in concluding. Uh, my second theme is hopelessness. Uh, there's a tendency for people to think that at some level, because of the world's problems, it's all hopeless anyway. Uh, I don't think it is. Well, I'll come to, I'll to tell you what I mean by that. Um, then thirdly, I just want to uh, say something about financial theory. Um, then to come forth, to come back to another theme, which is uh, wealth and poverty, which I've talked about a lot. Then the world of the next century. Uh, and I think one trend we'll see is the democratization of finance, that finance will become much more of an integral part of our lives in a new information technology-enriched world. And then lastly, I'll say something about your career. Uh, whether it's in finance or in something completely different, but I'm thinking that a good chance it has something to do with finance. Okay. Uh, so, let me start, though, with the first thing, which is about morality. I have, actually, the, the two optional readings I have on this part of the reading list are both about morality. Uh, and one is the book by Unger, uh, called Living High and Letting Die. Uh, I think it's a dramatically well-written book. But on the first page of, of the book, he refers you to um, UNICEF, uh, which uh, actually his book was written before the web got popular. Uh, the book is 1994, I think. 1996. He could have referred to the web, <laughs> but he gave the address. UNICEF is the United Nations, uh, what does the I stand for? Children's Educational Fund. But what's the I? Can someone tell me? <laughs> they don't actually emphasize what it spells out. It's the United Nations Fund for Children of the World. Uh, 
and that's their website. So he opens the book by saying, why don't you get out your checkbook right now and mail in $100 to UNICEF.org um, because the uh, uh, estimate as of 1996 is that UNICEF can save a child's life for $3. So you will save the lives of 33 children for your $100 check. How can they do that? How can they save a life? I think maybe he's referring to things like vaccination programs, you know, things that are really cheap that some children are not getting. And so statistically, you know, you can save a child's life for three dollars. Um, so he says write out a check. But of course, I can tell you what to do, and that is uh, just get, get log on to that and get out your credit card. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you can save 33 lives with $100, but maybe you can. Uh, so when I first read the book, I, I, I thought about that, and then I turned the page, <laughs> most of us do, and I, I realized later that I, a month later, that I'd never written out a $100 check. So I finally did it, <laughs> and I went on to UNICEF.org, and I gave exactly $100, as he called for. Uh, but then I started, you know, it, that was thought-provoking to think about that, because why did I stop at $100? <laughs> Um, why is it that most of us don't do that? There, 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 there are uh, intellectual defenses we have. We think of ourselves as good people. But if you were to see a dying child, right, you would emotionally be driven to do something, if, you, if there was something you could do, right? But somehow when they're not visible to us, we don't take ex action to make them visible. What the book consists of, Unger's book consists of, is an analysis of all the excuses we give uh, for not doing it, for not doing that sort of thing. So living our comfortable lives and letting other people die. Uh, and I think uh, it's really an interesting book because it, it is referring to a paradox of human behavior. This is at, I think of this as at the juncture of philosophy and psychology. And now those two departments are starting to, I understand, I'm not in either one of them, but are starting to come together because they're realizing that philosophical issues are related to psychological issues. Uh, so somehow the human spirit is very empathetic and sympathetic in certain dimensions, but not so in others. So. You know, when you read his book, you get a sense of meaninglessness or loss of purpose. Uh, it's not entirely comfortable to read it. He has a lot of examples of uh, moral dilemmas. Uh, I don't mean to find fault with his book, but uh, when I think further about it, it seems that maybe the book is a bit circumscribed by the kind of moral dilemmas that he poses. Uh, in, in some sense, uh, our moral dilemmas are, it's almost like it, the, the, there's a, a moral imperative for us to take action, to do things. That's sort of what he's getting at, but there's almost a moral imperative to be entrepreneurial to do things. And I, you know, I, um, I mentioned before Paul Allen, who was one of the top people in Microsoft who made uh, so much money and uh, squandered some of it, apparently, on uh, conspicuous consumption. 
but on the other hand gives a billion dollars to charity. Uh, so it seems to me that uh, this, uh, let's not conclude that people who don't write the hundred dollar check are evil. <laughs> let's uh, think of the many, many dimensionalities of, uh, uh, of morality. Uh, so the other book I had on this part of the course was by William Graham Sumner, uh, and it was written over a hundred years earlier, 1883, uh, called What the Social Classes Owe Each Other. Uh, and Sumner was uh, actually Yale's first real economist. Uh, interesting person. He was hired, he graduated Yale College in 1863, and uh, he was hired by Yale as a tutor in mathematics in 1866, uh, and uh, became interested in economics and sociology. He has the distinction of being the first American professor to teach a course called sociology. And in those days, there wasn't the distinction between the social sciences that there is now. So he could teach both sociology and economics. So in his book, I think he started a Yale tradition of conservative economics that lasted until the 1940s, and then Yale kind of drifted more toward the liberal end. But uh, uh, he writes anyway in 1883, is it wicked to be rich? Is it mean to be a, capitalism, a capitalist? Uh, and he says, first of all, it's, it seems, uh, uh, you know, if capitalists are just richer than other people, he asks, what, where's the drawing dividing line when someone is rich? Uh, so is it wicked to be above that line? But where do you draw the line? And if you learn from Unger, maybe we're all wicked because Anyone who doesn't write a hundred-dollar check every day to UNICEF when children are dying around the world is wicked. Um, but uh, what uh, Sumner is saying, and, and I, you know, it seems to be a theme that uh, survives the centuries uh, in, in favor of capitalists. I, I'll quote Sumner, the great gains of a, a great capitalist in a modern state must be put under the head of wages of superintendence. Anyone who believes that any great enterprise of an industrial character can be started without labor must have little experience of life. Let anyone try to get a railroad built or to start a factory and win reputation for its products, and he will find what obstacles must be overcome, what risks must be taken, what perseverance and courage are necessary. Um, so, uh, I don't know that I entirely agree with Sumner. He's, he's, uh, but he has a point that uh, part of our morality is to do good for the world by doing things like set up railroads and, uh, uh, or Microsoft. And the kind of activities that that entails will create opportunities for conspicuous consumption, uh, but not necessarily make that the defining characteristic of someone who does it. Uh, nobody is perfect, and it's hard to uh, judge people ultimately, but it seems to me that there's a, 
there's almost a moral imperative to entrepreneurship. So uh, then, uh, let me go on to the second theme that I said I would talk about, and that is hopelessness. Uh, a lot of people from their education get the idea that uh, ultimately there's nothing we can really do. This is one of Unger's um, Unger's uh, Unger talks about rationalizations we give for not being moral, and he calls it futility is a rationalization. Ultimately, there's always going to be starving people in the world, and you know I can try to help this child, but something is going to get him later, and so there's no point. Uh, if you have that kind of futility, sense of futility, it can justify any <coughs> amount of hedonism. Um, but I think that the, uh, the classic uh, uh, article on <laughs> that lends most people to that sense of futility, and I, I assume you know about this already, but it's uh, Malthus, uh, 1798, his essay on, well, the title of it was Essay on the Principle of Population. Uh, so Thomas Malthus wrote about the population uh, problem. It was such a celebrated ish, uh, essay that it, he went through six editions of it. But I'm going to quote from the first edition just to remind you. Uh, he said in 1798, population, when unchecked, increased in a geometrical ratio and subsistence for man in an arithmetical ratio. You know, so the, the population growth follows an exponential growth curve. He says geometrical, but uh, goes like that. Whereas he said, at best, the increase in of our ability to produce is linear, or he calls that arithmetical. And so population will run, run off uh, with all of our resources uh, there's nothing we can do. Population will continue to put pressure on our resources. Uh, he says, I'm quoting again from his 1798 essay, uh, population, when unchecked, goes on doubling itself every 25 years. In the next, if you go through two 25-year periods where there was no check on population growth, it is impossible, I'm quoting him, to suppose that the produce could be quadrupled, it would be contrary to all our knowledge of the qualities of land. Uh, and then he comes now to his dismal law of economics. Uh, he didn't call it that. I'm quoting, but I will quote him. Uh, no possible form of society could prevent the almost constant action of misery upon a great part of mankind, if in a state of inequality, and upon all, if all were equal. So it, th that the natural state of humankind is, is bordering on starvation and dying. And the, the force of his argument was quite profound because it uh, was hard to argue against him that there's nothing you can do about it. That's just it. Uh, and all the theorizing of people can only result in a world where more people are suffering and dying. Uh, if you want to think more about this, uh, I suggest you might go to uh, Robert Wyman, who is a professor here at Yale. Uh, 
on open Yale, which means it's another of these uh, courses on open on the internet, um, has a course called Go Global Problems of Population Growth, where he spends a whole semester thinking about the Malthusian problem. Um, one thing that he talks about in that course is that there's a popular sense that the population problem is not so bad anymore because many countries have in introduced birth control policies. I mean, notably, China has a one-child policy, supposedly. <laughs> it's not really a one-child policy. It's not enforced that well. It's more like a two-child policy or and people have even more than that. But other kind of India, and certain regions of India have made great progress, we're told, in birth control. But still, despite that, uh, Wyman estimates that the, the world adds a billion people every 12 years. Uh, so that's a problem, and uh, our resources are, are limited. So the, the problem is that people are crowding into the cities because there's no room for them on the land. They're trying to get an education to push themselves ahead, but the sheer numbers of people make it impossible uh, for them all to get ahead. Uh, so I suggest that you, you might uh, take his course. Uh, it's, it's a problem that people don't want to face up to. So I'm sounding very dismal here, but actually I think that the, the problem is, uh, is not as bad as it may seem. Uh, and this is my take on it. I, I tend to be a realist about these things. We have a population problem. It's going to be with us. But hey, it's been with us forever, going all the way back in history. So it's, it's, it's a tough world that we live in because we're in the human race is naturally procreating and naturally creating population pressures and conflicts that lead to wars and famines and uh, uh, we've been going through a good run uh, in the last few centuries, but it's growing. I don't know when the end, that's not an end, when, when we're going to see more uh, severe problems. But uh, uh, that just seems to be right and inevitable. But I think that that doesn't mean, you know, I think that the, we the weakest part of, of Malthus' argument is the last step, saying that it's necessarily a dismal world. Uh, that results. So I, I wanted to put the bright side on Malthus' dismal law, and that is uh, most of the time, everyone's fine. In the world, most people, uh, you know, it's famines and wars are intermittent <coughs> events that reduce population. Between those big events, pretty much everyone is doing all right. So, I mean, maybe it's not as bad as you think. You know, you, you, you might get killed in a war someday, but you enjoy life <laughs> until that happens. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's very basic, but I think it, it's true. Uh, but uh, moreover, I think that there's a lot that we can do to make life better, uh, even in the context of uh, the dismal law, even accepting the dismal law. And I think that our civilization is improving so that life is better, even though they, there are population pressures. And that's why I think there's a, uh, you know, maybe I'm saying the obvious here, but I, I want to say it anyway, that there are plenty of purposes and goals that people can, that people can uh, fulfill, even taking as given Malthus' dismal law. 
So I, I talked last period about nonprofit and uh, charity uh, uh, and government as well. Uh, there are a lot of people who are doing specific things to make the world respond better to the dismal law of Malthus. Uh, and I wanted to uh, mention certain uh, examples just, just to make this clear. I, I think that there's work being done by governments of the world. There's also work being done by individuals who don't need government. They set up their own organizations. So I, I was specifically talking about uh, uh, the environment. It, this is what's being threatened by population growth. Uh, and so there are many foundations that deal with the environment. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention a few. The Nature Conservancy, the World Wildlife, Wildlife Fund, the Wildlife Conservation Society, uh, and there's specialized ones called like African Wildlife Foundation, the Jane Goodall Institute, the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund. You know, you think the gorillas out there are wild, but there's finance and support. They've collected money. Someone is managing an endowment for the gorillas, okay? This is creative finance. You know, a part of the problem with, you think about what's happening with the population pressures of the world. And is it bad or not? Well, in some sense, it's good. Having, you know, 10 billion people on the world would just make it for a more interesting place, right? There'd be more arts and sciences and fun things to do. Eventually, we're, we're going to colonize the moon and Mars, and there's going to be fun trips to do. So I don't know if it's a bad world that we're coming into, even if there are conflicts. Uh, but, uh, but part of, you know, I think there's specific problems with that world. And one of them is the extinction of species. You think about that. You know, we're destroying habitat for species, and they're going to be gone forever. Uh, so, but the thing is that those kinds of problems are problems that have sort of business solutions. And I wanted to talk about one particular foundation. Uh, it's a nonprofit, and I'll just give this as an example. Uh, the Nature Conservancy. Uh, it was founded in uh, 1951 in the United States, but it now operates in 30 countries. Uh, its total assets are 5.6 billion, which makes it the third largest charity in the United States. Uh, and they have a principle of conservation <coughs> by design. The idea is. Our purpose is to prevent extinction of species, because the extinction is forever. You know, these species have taken hundreds of millions of years to <coughs> evolve. They get wiped out, they're gone. As far as we know, they're gone forever. So <coughs> what they do is they get scientists who have specialized in environment and biology, and they say, which species are endangered, and what can we really do? Uh, to prevent their extinction. And one thing that uh, the scientists have been telling them is that you have to preserve habitat for species, and you have to do it with purpose and uh, clarity. What do these animals need? 
Some of them are migratory, for example, and they migrate over long distances. So you have to preserve a migratory route and stopping places along the way for them. So it has to be done well. So the Nature Conservancy believes also that the way to protect habitat is to buy land and put up fences around it to keep people out and then have a forest manager run it so that the species will uh, have it. Uh, will have that land. Uh, they, they say that they have 500,000 square kilometers of land that they've bought around the world. I calculated that there's 150 million square kilometers of land on the earth. So they have one third of one percent of the world's land protected uh, by their uh, charity. Now that might seem small, but you know, that's a big difference, right? Because if it's a last habitat, that might be enough to keep a lot of species diversity going. So uh, that is uh, that's an example of what th this is really finance. <laughs> we have portfolio managers managing uh, portfolio and, and, and properties of land uh, with a, a good purpose, and uh, it's uh, it uh, you know. That's where I say the moral dilemmas are not so simple. You could take a job managing a portfolio for one of these foundations. Um, Peter Unger, in his book, is talking about, always about, uh, you know, would you save a child who fell in the water or something like that. But that's not the kind of moral dilemmas that we, we, uh, we uh, really face. In the, uh, that, that, that an energetic intellect would find. The moral dilemma is to prevent big, th bad things from happening, and that takes a sort of entrepreneurship and big thinking to, to manage. Um, another thought I had in this context is about wars. I was saying that population pressures are a fact of life, and I'm skeptical that anyone will, anyone will Change the basic nature of the situation, uh, but I, I wanted to, to, in this context to emphasize that uh, financial arrangements are <coughs> capable of enduring and surviving wars and catastrophes. Uh, I, I wanted particularly to make it uh, clear that. There's a tendency for people to think that finance is something that the government runs. You can easily get that impression because when you go into finance, the first thing you have to do is get licensed, right? And you have to file some papers with either the government or a government-approved organization. And, and then you, you will find there's a whole list of laws and regulations that you have to memorize and uh, forms that have to be filed with government agencies and permissions to be granted. So it sounds like this is just the government. But I, I think that's the wrong view. I think that you should think of finance as people making arrangements with other people. And governments are helpful and uh, they enforce uh, contracts, but they don't determine them. And in particular, I wanted to give you a few examples uh, that, uh, that clarify this. Uh, the, uh, what do you think happened after World War I with financial arrangements? Germany 
was lost the war. People were really angry with Germany. In the Versailles Conference uh, after World War I, uh, Germany was made to pay huge reparation payments, payments that some people thought were so heavy that the country will never be able to do it. So what do you think they did to financial contracts? You know, Germany was at its knees. People thought they were evil, <laughs> um, or many people thought they were evil. Well, there was talk about taking away people who own stocks or bonds. Let's just confiscate them and tell them, you know, you were in the wrong country, the wrong time, tough on you. But they talked about doing it, but they didn't do it. The reparations were obligations of the German government, and they were paid by taxing people, and they taxed people in an equitable they didn't actually pay them, by the way. <laughs> the skeptics were right. Germany never was able to pay the reparations. But it tried to pay them by taxing people, not by confiscating. Because ultimately, when it came down to it, they thought, well, you know, Germans are all different, and some of them supported the war, and some of them didn't, and some of them saved all their lives, and they've got a big am amount of money. So let's not confiscate their, their shares. So they didn't. That's my first example. Uh, uh, what, um, second example, Iran. Remember, it was ruled by the Shah of Iran, uh, who was a secular uh, ruler, uh, hereditary ruler of Iran, overthrown by uh, a people's uh, Islamic revolution, and the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, became the, uh, the spiritual authority for the new country, became much more Islamic. All right, so what do you think happened to financial contracts in Iran? In particular, the, the Iranian government under the Shah had a social security system, and they were paying to government employees pensions. So what do you think the Ayatollah did? Guys working all his life for the Shah, we've overthrown the Shah, do you still get your pension? What do you think? They did. They didn't cancel. I think it's, it's like common sense. You come in, you are a totally different government. You know, now you're an Islamic, a radical Islamic government. Now, I don't say that they won't do some things that you don't like, but uh, they see the basic financial contracts and they, they preserve them. The other example I'll give is South Africa. Uh, and that is in 1994, the white uh, apartheid government uh, was replaced by a government that uh, was elected by the black majority in South Africa. Uh, so, uh, what do you think happened to their pensions or their insurance or their, uh, were they confiscated? No. So I think that this is a principle in history. Now, I can give other examples, of course, where things went uh, badly. Uh, Vladimir Lenin uh, wasn't so kind to stockholders in Russia after this Russian Revolution. Uh, Lazaro Cardenas in Mexico nationalized the oil industry. Mao Zedong, you know who he is in China. Uh, uh, not kind to capitalists. Uh, Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran nationalized the oil industries. Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt uh, uh, nationalized a wide range of industries. Even in India, Indira Gandhi did widespread nationalizations that were effectively con confiscations.
Even the United States has, in some sense, been involved in those sorts of things. After World War II, the United States was not going to confiscate wealth of wealthy people in general, but in Japan, uh, the, there were these wealthy families that maintained uh, industries called zaibatsu. Uh, these were the family-owned businesses that dominated Japan before World War II. Uh, the big four. Uh, well, I don't. Uh, uh, Mitsubishi, Yasuda, who else? What are the uh, Mitsui? And what am I thinking of? It's not in my notes. But these uh, big wealthy families were thought to have supported the war and made Japan into more radical than it would have been. So there was a lot of U.S. thinking that we had to break up the zaibatsu. So what the United States did is force these families to convert their holdings of industry in Japan into, uh, into yen-denominated government bonds. And then the Japanese government had a huge hyperinflation and wiped them out. So it wasn't actually a confiscation. The U.S. government didn't deliberately confiscate the wealth of the zaibatsu, um, but they, they effectively did that. Um, so, by the way, we still have zaibatsu in Japan, but they're not owned by those families anymore. It's the, the same industrial conglomerates still survive. So, the third topic I was saying I would talk about is, uh, maybe I'll be brief about this, the importance of financial theory. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I'm an advocate of two seemingly disparate things, and you know this from this course. One of them is mathematical finance. We spent some time on it, but uh, uh, not, not very much because there's another course. It's also on Open Yale that uh, John, John Acopoulos has uh, on mathematical finance. Uh, but I th the, the other side of it is behavioral finance, uh, which is a, a particular passion of mine. Uh, and behavioral finance is the application of psychology and other social sciences to finance. And I think that the two actually work together symbiotically, uh, and we should consider them together. Some people in mathematical finance are very opposed to behavioral finance uh, because it kind of uh, muddles their world. <laughs> but in fact, I think they should consider it their salvation because Without, uh, without behavioral finance, they're kind of bordering on irrelevant. You have to consider things in a broader context and think of the, uh, the interruptions and problems that, uh, that are caused. Uh, so, I said the next topic I, I would talk about today is, I've already been talking about it a bit, is about wealth and poverty. It seems to me it's fundamentally connected with our thoughts about finance because, uh, you know, I've, I've referred to this problem before that people think that people who go into finance are money grubbers. <laughs> they want to make money. They, uh, they don't have human feelings or something like that. Uh, and uh, they, they, there's also this sense that we're living in a world that's increasingly Plutocratic—that the wealthy people are are controlling 
uh, controlling the world. Uh, that was a theme that took a lot of uh, impetus in the 19th century with Karl Marx, who said exactly that. Uh, and in some sense, it's coming back, uh, maybe in not such an extreme form. So, uh, Jacob Hacker, who's in our political science department, and Paul Pearson, who's at Stanford uh, University, have a new book that just came out called Winner Take All Politics. Um, and that book is about, they have a claim in that book that the world is getting more polarized by the political power of financial institutions. Basically, they have something they call the Thirty Years' War. What's the Thirty Years' War? You might think it's something that happened in the 17th century. Not for them. The, the Thirty Years' War is the war against the people of the world fought by the financial community in the halls of Congress and Parliament by lobbying. So they argue that the companies have gotten more and more sophisticated in lobbying governments to, to uh, fulfill their ambitions. And so the income inequality that we're seeing increasing, particularly in the United States, but elsewhere in the world, is a consequence of this. So uh, Hacker and Pearson say, much of the literature on income inequality says it has something to do with the information revolution, which is uh, eliminating jobs for low-income people, uh, and the imp uh, increasing importance of education, uh, which rewards college graduates at the expense of uneducated people. But they say that the real increase in inequality has not been between high school graduates and college graduates. It's between the whole population and the top tenth of a percent. There, there is this communi small community of super-rich people that are developing who are very adept at lobbying governments. This is a trend that's developing. Uh, so, well, I think if they are, to, the, to some extent, they are probably right. I think maybe they overstate that, but I think it, it's a concern. But I think that we do have democratic institutions, and uh, we, we can respond to that. Uh, so that, uh, I think maybe they overstate it, because I think that uh, the, I've met billionaires <laughs> in my life, I have a sense that they are not, uh, I guess they have, sometimes they might have, I don't have, I haven't met enough of them to make generalities about billionaires, but maybe they have a little bit of a self-serving mentality, but in some sense they seem not to care. Uh, you know, it, you know uh, they don't want to be viewed as evil. They want to be, uh, a lot of what drove them to become billionaires was a sense that they would be a, a benefactor of some sort, and so they're ready to give it away. Uh, anyway, that may be a casual impression, but, um, but one thing that angers people about wealth is the tendency of wealthy people to build monuments to themselves. Uh, so I was thinking of that when I was at the uh, J.P. Morgan uh, Library uh, in New York, uh, and also there's something called the Metropolitan Club, which is another building that he built to himself. This huge mansion in Manhattan uh, that, that he built. 
and I was thinking, is J.P. Morgan evil? I mean, uh, people are starving in the world and he's building a manu mansion for himself. But then I reflected further, here I am having dinner in his mansion. He's gone. Um, and uh, is it really so bad in the, in the, uh, uh, in the scheme of things? Uh, so, uh, it, you know, it comes down to how, you, yeah, I guess you can view it in different ways. You can view J.P. Morgan as a great success who, uh, who uh, ended up helping the world, or you can view him as a selfish uh, monument builder. Um, but so, the, uh, his life overlapped with Karl Marx that I, I told you about. But one of Karl Marx's themes was um, that uh, the system is unfair, that some people have capital, and that was the theme of uh, his book, Das Kapital. Some people have capital and they are wealthy as a result, and they will continue to be wealthy, and they'll make their children wealthy as a result. I actually have a quote from Karl Marx. Um, it is not because he is a leader of industry that a man in, uh, is a capitalist. On the contrary, he is a leader of industry because he is a capitalist. The leadership of industry is an attribute of capital, just as in feudal times the functions uh, of General and judge were at attributes of landed property. That comes from his book, Capital, uh, in, uh, in 19th century. Uh, so Marx thought that uh, ownership of capital was like a key to, uh, to the good life and that the population was excluded from that. Um, but I'm going to come back to the democratization of finance, but it seems like Capitalism, it isn't essential to capitalism that some social class dominates capital. We can have a capitalism that is, uh, that is divided up among, that, that is more of peoples. Uh, it belongs to uh, people and it's not uh, a privileged class that, um. so another thing I wanted to talk about is uh, my concern, you know, Marx had Marx was impressive, I think I may have said this before, he was impressive because he read emerging sociology. And the sociology of, that, of his day was beginning to recognize that people do form themselves into social classes and they have a sense of loyalty to others in their social class. But I think that, you know, anything he said is of limited relevance today, <laughs> was always of limited relevance. Uh, interesting but wrong in many ways. But, uh, the, um, I'm thinking of uh, the works of another uh, important thinker, uh, Robert K. Merton, who is a sociologist at Columbia. Uh, he is the father of the Robert Merton economist who uh, helped develop option theory. But Robert K. Merton uh, referred to what he called the cosmopolitan class. So he was looking at social classes. He picked a small town in the United States and interviewed a lot of people and was trying to understand their class structure. You know, who do you identify with? Who are you loyal <coughs> with? And uh, he was uh, 
deep thinker, I think, and looked at, um, looked at what really seemed to separate people. And he decided that in this little town that uh, there were really two classes of people. He called them cosmopolitans and locals. Uh, so uh, the cosmopolitans had a very different worldview. They tended to not care about what's going on in their town. They would talk about national or international things. They w you know, you'd listen to what they say. They were focused outside. They, they thought the town was irrelevant. When you talk to the locals, and it tended to have maybe uh, higher level positions. The, the locals were people, though, who would talk all about their town. And they would talk about people they know. They seemed to, they seemed to value their connections within the town. Uh, and uh, when you asked uh, for opinions about the local town, the locals would tend to give almost loving expressions. This is a great town. We have great people here. And the cosmopolitans would act totally indifferent. And they don't know anybody. They don't know who's the you know, head of the fire department or who, the, who holds the. Uh, maybe they know the, uh, the principal of the school because they got, may have their kid in the school, but beyond that, they don't know anything about their town. So uh, Merton wrote that over 50 years ago. I have a sense that it's developing further, this split between cosmopolitans and locals. And it's developing on a world scale. There is now a world <laughs> cosmopolitan class. Uh, and with increased communications, we're kind of split that way. So uh, people are around the world who are learning to speak English well, that's the world language. People who travel around the world. Uh, and people who are finance savvy. Uh, so uh, uh, are developing into a social class. Uh, and I think that there are animosities and conflicts, but it's a little bit harder to have because the cosmopolitans are so scattered and they're relatives of us, so it's not as intense a social uh, uh, contrast. But you know, I think that the, the animosities that we are feeling now uh, have to do with the fact that co cosmopolitans know and understand finance, and they have lawyers and advisors. Uh, the, the rest of the population feels excluded from, from that. Uh, so uh, th that brings us to uh, what I said was the um, democratization of finance. And this is uh, a theme of my own that I've been emphasizing. Uh, so the democratization of finance is sort of trying to make it move beyond the cosmopolitan class. Okay. So cosmopolitans know how to get things done, how to raise capital, uh, but, uh, and they know how to manage their risks uh, so they don't get into trouble. Inequality is substantially due to a failure to manage risks. Uh, and so uh, in the, uh, right, I mean, it, some inequality is due to fundamental things, like someone is talented and can make more money. But it's also due to random things that are not controlled. Notably, in the current financial crisis, we saw a huge drop in home values. And we saw people who bought homes at the top of the market, and then they, they find that their mortgages are worth more than their 
homes are, and so they have a negative net worth. They're in trouble. They're, they would be bankrupt. Uh, maybe they're not bankrupt yet, but they're verging on that. They're very unhappy. Uh, this was a, f a failure, uh, I think, of bringing finance to the people. So it's not democratizing finance. We haven't, we haven't finished democratizing finance. Uh, so you know, it's kind of chaotic the way things work for the most people. Uh, most people who a do not have a lawyer, b do not have a financial advisor, <laughs> c do not have an accountant. All right, or maybe they go to some you know uh, storefront uh, tax-paying service, but that, that's that's as far as they go. And these people make a mess of their lives. So, uh, for example, we have laws that allow people to go bankrupt and wipe off their debts. Uh, all you have to do, if you are in trouble, financial trouble, is go to a lawyer and and say, can you help me file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy? I'd like to wipe out all my debts. Uh, but usually you have to have $1,000 to pay the lawyer to help you do this, and these people can't get it together to do that. So what happens? What happens to this typical person who's uneducated, has gotten deeply in debt? What do you think happens? Do they ever declare bankruptcy? No. Uh, what do they do? They stop answering the phone because they're getting these uh, dunning calls from creditors. Uh, and so the creditors then, it's called informal bankruptcy. They will go to court and uh, ask the judge to allow them to garnish the wages of the person who won't pay and won't answer the phone. So they'll take another deduction from the person's paycheck eventually. The person never figures it out. His paycheck just went down and <laughs> he's paying off his debt. Uh, what a mess! But that's because of uh, uh, that's because of the failure of, of financial institutions to to handle things well. So uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who is at, I mentioned her before uh, at the Harvard Law School, has written a couple of books about these problems that people face, uh, and it's it's a testimony to the the success of our democratic government. That she managed to persuade uh, Dodd and Frank to put it in her bill, on, in their bill, uh, their, uh, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, which uh, uh, would create a government agency that would try to limit uh, the abuse of, uh, of uh, lower income, less educated uh, people. Uh, we were hoping that she would be made head of her bureau, but it turns out that uh, she is only acting, uh, what her exact title is, transitioning into finding head for the bureau because the uh, lobbyists that I told you about representing credit card or mortgage industries are uh, adamantly opposed to seeing her put on as head of the, of the bureau. Uh, so Looks like it's politically impossible to put her in charge of it, but she's at least involved in helping pick the person who would make that happen. So uh, I think these are nice steps forward. But it, I wrote a book. Uh, let me just mention my own book in 2008 uh, called Subprime Solution. Um, 
And so I was trying to think of the future, uh, and again, trying to think creatively and expansively without, uh, without thinking punitively, as uh, Elizabeth Warren seems often to do. Her view tends to be that there are exploiters who need to be regulated. But I'm thinking that maybe there's something positive we can do. Uh, so I have various ideas. Also, I had this was 2008. Uh, uh, I also had another book, New Financial Order, uh, in uh, 2003. I'm getting on toward 10 books now in my life. And I'm having trouble remembering which one is which. I was just commenting to my wife. It's a little bit of a problem. But it's somewhere in these books. Uh, one of the ideas uh, I had, actually it's in uh, New Financial Order, is for livelihood insurance that would help protect. This is a financial institution that would protect people's livelihoods. I viewed it as an expansion of something that we got already called disability insurance. In fact, it's been offered by the government in the United States as part of the Social Security system. But it handles certain insurance against certain specific kinds of risks to livelihoods, namely health risks. If you become paralyzed, if you become mentally ill, any of those things that a doctor can uh, attest to is insured already. Very important because things like that happen to people and they can't earn a living anymore and it happens to young people. And so, uh, we, we have private insurance. The government has taken over uh, part of disability insurance, but there's also private disability insurance. But none of this covers the biggest threats to people's livelihoods. Most threats to livelihoods are not due to uh, medical <coughs> events. It's economic events that make you, you know, you, you're 40 years old, you've trained for, let's say, nuclear engineering, okay? And then we have the Fukushima or the uh, uh, Sendai disasters, and then suddenly no government of the world wants to build nuclear plants anymore. So here you are, you're 40 years old, you're, you're reaching your prime, you would normally be making a good high income, but now it's useless. Uh, no fault of your own. This is a risk that you cannot now insure, and it's part of the thing that contributes to inequality. And so I think that we can insure those things. And in the future, as finance develops, these are some of the missions that, that we have to do. Uh, another thing is home equity insurance. That uh, I mentioned before that the crisis was caused by a failure to insure against home price risk. Uh, I've been working on trying to get home equity insurance started. Some of my colleagues at Yale uh, uh, Will Getzman and Barry Nailbuff, particularly, have uh, cre actually created an insurance policy that would insure homes against price declines in the city of Syracuse, New York. Didn't uh, really take off, so this is still not happening yet. Um, but here's the idea. You can buy insurance against your home burning down. That's, that goes back 300 years. But how often do homes burn down? Not very often. What's the real risk that you face? It's the loss of economic value of a home. Uh, and so, uh, uh, that is not, not insured anywhere in the world. Why not? We could insure it. I think these are things that would, that you know, developing home equity insurance or livelihood insurance would be 
positive steps. I have one more example from this uh, book, Subprime Solution, something I call a continuous workout mortgage. Okay, in the financial crisis today, right now, there are 2.5 million households that are on the verge of defaulting on their mortgages. Haven't yet, but they're, they are at risk of defaulting and being thrown out of their houses. So that's something like close to 10 million people. Uh, big, big time event. Why is it that they're being thrown out? Well, because their home value has dropped. Maybe they're unemployed, their income has dropped. We still have 8.8% unemployment. And they can't pay their mortgage. Uh, and maybe they think it's futile because they're paying a debt that uh, is bigger than their wealth. And so maybe <laughs> they don't feel in a very good mood about it. They go back to the mortgage lender and ask for a workout. And the mortgage lender typically says no. The government has done a sequence of programs to try to encourage the uh, servicers of mortgages to do workouts. That means lower their payments or somehow make it easier. Uh, but it's been disappointing. They, they haven't succeeded in getting cooperation on these programs. It's a, one of the big tragedies of the financial crisis. So what I proposed is that we should think forward. I don't know how we can solve this mess right now, but think about in the future having mortgages that have a pre-planned workout. And the workout would lower the, uh, uh, lower the uh, uh, cost of, uh, of uh, the lower the payment on the mortgage uh, uh, continuously, not just. The other problem with workouts is w w even when people get a workout on their mortgage, they default anyway because things get even worse later. And you, you know, you've got one workout, you go back and say, I'd like another workout. They say, you've got to be kidding. And the, the, anyway, the government, like the HAMP program that, we, that the uh, Obama administration has uh, um, promoted, has only one workout for each family. So uh, I think they should be continuous and automatic. And they don't require anyone to. Um, uh, to, to do the, to, to apply for a workout. Okay, so how much time do I have? I think I'll, I'll move to my last subject, which is uh, your career. Uh, because uh, you are young people and you may be wondering what you want to do. Uh, so, uh, I think that, uh, I think I maybe have reflected on this before. You, you probably feel that you want to do something important and uh, you want a sort of um, perfect career, something uh, that tells a story, makes a story of your life and ultimately serves uh, for good causes. Uh, but it's, uh, when you, when you read Unger, you don't get an inspiration like that, right? You get, he says, write a check right now to UNICEF. Well, I can do that, but that's, does that, you know, it seems unrewarding just to give to charity. Uh, I can just live like a monk, right? I could take a job uh, at, at a hamburger joint, right, and then give all my money away to UNICEF. Uh, some of that doesn't feel right. We, we, because I think that, you know, you, you know that you have abilities and you want to see them uh, flourish and you want to 
That's why I think uh, you shouldn't be flipping hamburgers and giving the money away. That's not what you should be doing now. Uh, and uh, instead, it would be learning things that make it possible to do good works. Uh, so, uh, I don't know what, uh, what is the perfect career? I mean, I mentioned uh, Paul Allen or Bill Gates. Uh, Bill Gates, I shouldn't give you an example of dropping out of college, but he dropped out of college. <laughs> and by the way, you should do that if you have a Microsoft size idea. Um, but <laughs> I think I've said this before. We took, um, but, uh, uh, I, uh, I don't know, what is a perfect career? I'll give you another example. Muhammad Yunus, you've heard of him who, uh, he uh, uh, went to um, a PhD program at Vanderbilt University, got his PhD in 1969, became an assistant professor of economics at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. Uh, but then the big thing that he did is he went back to uh, Bangladesh and founded the Grameen Bank. Uh, the Grameen Bank, which specialized in making microfinance loans in uh, Bangladesh. Uh, and that was in 76. Uh, Grameen apparently means of the village in Bengali. Uh, but what he did is he conceived of a new way of making loans to uh, very low-income people. Banks uh, before um, Eunice didn't have much interest in lending to low-income people because the costs of administering the loans seemed to be too high relative to what you could get back. But he had a scheme for getting people to pay back the loans. Uh, often they would make loans to women in groups. Uh, impoverished women, but he would lend to the whole group and say that the whole group is jointly liable to the debt. That's the only way we'll make it. And it's for business, for starting a business, like getting a wheeled cart where you could sell food on the street. Some simple, low business like that. You can't do it unless you get a little bit of capital, enough to buy the cart and buy the first food to start selling. Uh, and these women can't get that capital. But when he makes it available to them as a group, they then interact with each other and enforce the good behavior of each other, and it's a system that worked. So he won the Nobel Peace Prize uh, in 2006. It was not the prize in economic, it was the prize in peace. So that's an example of the, uh, the kind of careers that I think some of you might think about. Uh, so I think that uh, in looking forward to your own careers, you have to think about uh, the next five decades. You're going to be working, I said this before, I think, but you're going to be working for another 50 years, right? Uh, more if, uh, if you enjoy it. With modern health care, you might live to 100, uh, but you won't be working at 100 probably. You'll probably retire by then. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe you've got a century ahead of you. Um, and I think that the, the world will change a lot uh, over this interval of time. I think that, by the way, we will be 
information technology will be changing so many things that we do in ways that we can't see. Uh, and uh, financial markets will be everywhere. So I, I may be presumptuous to think that some of these ideas here uh, are <laughs> likely to come about, but I've, I've come to start to think that they're all inevitable because I've already, we've already seen the past, we've seen how financial markets have, have captured more and more risks. And we have such an advance in our technology that it really ought to be big changes that will, that will come. Uh, so uh, I guess you, what you have to do is maintain a, uh, a century-long personal outlook. I mean, just think about how much happened in the last century, right? We had two world wars. We had the whole communism came and, dis you know, extreme communism came and disappeared. Um, things like that are going to happen in the next century. Uh, and so I, th I think uh, you have to... Uh, uh, you have to reflect on your role as an agent, not to think of it as something that the go a remote government is handling. This is something that you have responsibility for helping develop uh, how the world will turn out in the next century. Uh, I was just saying that uh, governments come and go, but financial contracts and institutions and the people who manage them uh, continue. Uh, I think that you face great career risks in this new environment that um, I mentioned before the 40-year-old who finds that his career is suddenly eliminated because of some random change. Uh, there's evidence that uh, what happens to you in life depends on random events. Uh, it, it's really so much unforecastable. I'm thinking of myself, you know, for example. What did I think I would be doing? I'm, I'm still, I, I just stay in the same place. I've lived in New Haven for almost 30 years and I've been a college professor. But when I was your age, I never thought that I would be doing public speaking the way I have been. I have, you know, I get, I'm all over the, I don't mean to exaggerate, but I didn't have the confidence. Uh, you know, I was on my high school debate team and I didn't particularly do well. Uh, I think you just develop, you know, a career is developed and random things happen and you discover things about yourself. Um, I was going to point out studies that show how random events affect where you go. Uh, so, uh, Joshua Angrist, who's uh, an economist, uh, did a study of the effect of the draft lottery uh, on success of people in life. In 1969, in, in, during the Vietnam War, the U.S. government decided to use a lottery based on birth dates to decide who gets drafted into the U.S. Army and sent to Vietnam. And so, uh, Angrist thought that was a good controlled experiment. Let's compare the lifetime <coughs> income of people who, the way they did it is they drew out of an urn all birthdays. There's 366 days, birthdays. They drew them out of an urn, and the first one who was drawn was the first one to go to Vietnam. <laughs> and then, it, uh, as it went down, the, the, the lower, the, the, the higher the number, you, the, the less likely it has, is that you would ever be asked to go. And so, Angrist, by the way, I got 362. I couldn't believe it. What great luck. I, when, we were listening on the radio, I was a graduate student, we were listening on the radio. Uh, 
for the lottery numbers, and uh, we are drinking beer, and people were all excited, wondering who was, who was going to get drafted. <laughs> and I thought, you know, when it, when it got into the 50, 350, 351, 352, I thought, I must have missed my birthday. I, I, I can't be this far down, but I got 362. And that's part of my success story, because according to Angris, people who, who were drafted, who got the low number uh, on the lottery, ended up with lower lifetime earnings and, uh, you know, that kind of random event uh, affects your whole life. I, you know, the, the word career goes back to the sense that there, there are random things that happen, opportunities that come and, and uh, lack of opportunities that, uh, that hurt your life. That, uh, uh, so, uh, I think that uh, you have to accept the fact that it's a risky world, that uh, uh, you have to try to position yourself, uh, maintain an... I think one important piece of advice I like to think of is maintain an orientation toward history in the making that there's a tendency for people to think of, to orient themselves in terms of their own life cycle. They think, what's going on now? Well, I'm a junior at Yale and I'm going to be applying to graduate school next year. Uh, you should be thinking, well, this is a time in history when, uh, you know, the, the, the Middle East is changing rapidly, uh, that uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, the emerging countries are, are developing uh, new technologies and uh, thinking about the opportunities that are happening in the world. That's kind of what we got from Hank Greenberg in his lecture. Remember that uh, he said that the founder of his company decided to move to China at the beginning of the 20th century and, and founded a business because of what he saw was happening in Shanghai, which was an international city at the time. So I, I'm going to go there and I'm going to make it a, a business. That's kind of positioning yourself with history. And then he moved out of China before Mao Zedong took over and then moved back in. I mean, this is, this is history awareness and I, I think that it, it matters enormously. But it, you still can't completely uh, eliminate the role of chance in your life. Uh, this is a time-honored uh, principle. I was actually going to quote uh, the Bible. <laughs> Uh, Ecclesiastes was the book of the Bible written probably, uh, what, when was that written? Around um, 500 B.C., something, or 600 B.C. Uh, and this is, a th you've probably heard this. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill but time and chance happeneth to them all. So, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a time-honored truth, that randomness, uh, uh, I actually had this, uh, time and chance happeneth to them all. I actually had that inscribed in Latin uh, when I had my office redone. I have, it's over my desk in my office at home. Uh, uh, Tempus casumque in omnibus. Uh, chance plays a huge role in our lives and, uh, and it, this risky world plays a sequence of events over your lifetime that we have to uh, try to manage. So what I hope to do in this course, this was really a course about managing risks as well as enterprise and uh, co uh, creating a cooperative spirit. 
uh, I wanted to try to convey to you that we have a technology for that that uh, that uh, will be should be a part of your life. All right, thank you.